There was a in a moment. There was a person in, in another country. His name was Sheikh Hanif, um, and he was dissatisfied with Islam because he didn't know where he stood in his relationship with God. And uh, he saw the people around him; they were not very compassionate. And they had kind of a total control in the society there. He didn't wasn't happy with the violence that was inherent with Islam, so he he was asking God to show him the truth. And one night he went to sleep, and he had a dream, and Jesus showed up. And Jesus said, "I am Isa al Messiah," which is the Arabic term for Jesus the Messiah. And if you obey me, you will succeed in what you have longed for in your life. What should I do? Hanif asked. Jesus showed him a tree standing alone atop a hill, a very busy road running beneath its branches. Hanif recognized the place, for it was well known to him and not too far from his home. Then Jesus showed him the face of a man and said, Go now and wait under the tree by the road. Look for this man... For he is my servant. You will recognize him when you see him. Find him, for he will show you the true answers to all your questions about God. When he got up the next morning, he was really excited. He rushed off to the place that he knew where he would find the man, and he looked for him from early in the morning all through the day, and he kept waiting, and he didn't see him until just before dark, he finally spotted him. He was so excited. He ran up to him and greeted him really excitedly. And the person will call him Wafi. It took him a few minutes for the excited Sheikh to convince Wafi that he meant no harm in spite of the intensity of his greeting. My friend, understand it is Isa al-Masiyah himself who requires you to answer my questions tonight. This seemed to Wafi like a heavy burden to be met unexpectedly by a stranger and told, you must answer all my questions tonight. <laughs> but the man was unwilling to meet at a later date and had waited all day, actually for many years, for answers to his life and death questions. And he was not inclined to wait any longer, and Wafi could not pass up the chance to share the good news of Christ with this man who was so hungry to hear so he shared with him the gospel. He discipled him. Then Sheikh Hanif discipled two other leaders in the community. They started two churches. He moved to another place and started seven more churches. And this is the way the gospel proceeds. God's doing some amazing things around the world. And... Um, pretty exciting when those things happen, when you see those things. There's a joy in that. Oops. So this uh, story comes from a book called Miraculous Movements by Jerry Truesdale. This is a true story. There's a lot of good ones in this book. And Jerry Truesdale is from the international branch of City Team. City Team, you might know from San Jose, they do a lot of work among the poor, and they're taking a lot of the principles that are being applied to discipleship around the world, and they're bringing them back and applying them right here, and they're having a great deal of success in making disciples 
among the poor here in San Jose. Uh, Hermie Smith is with City Team, and some of the things I'm going to talk about are coming from training class that he gave. You'll notice that I mentioned uh, another part of the world, and in <clears throat> this graph I'm showing the number of evangelical Christians over time. This goes from 1960 to 20, 2015 or so. And the ones in the non-West, that is Asia, Latin America, Africa, those places are seeing phenomenal growth in the number of evangelical Christians. In the West, there's still some growth, but it's a lot slower. So we have a lot to learn from what God is doing in other parts of the world. And I'm going to um, <clears throat> be talking about some of those things right now. And one of the key texts <clears throat> that's been influential in discipleship movements around the world has been this one that we're going to look at, Luke chapter 10. Um, Paul, you, yeah, if anybody doesn't have a Bible, you can raise your hand and we'll get you a Bible. We're only going to be really looking through 12 verses, but there's so much packed into these that I'm going to have to fly through them and basically just give an outline of what Jesus is saying. So I'm going to leave the rest to Nick to dive deeper when he gets to this passage later on, maybe a year from now or so. Okay. So with that, I've got, if you, if you haven't found it yet, um, it's up on the screen here. Luke chapter 10, verses 1 through 12. After this, the Lord appointed 72 others and sent them on ahead of him two by two, into every town and place where he himself was about to go. And he said to them, The harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. Go your way. Behold, I am sending you out as lambs in the midst of wolves. Carry no money bag, no knapsack, no sandals, and greet no one on the road. Whatever house you enter, first say, Peace be to this house. And if a son of peace is there, your peace will rest upon him. But if not, it will return to you. And remain in the same house, eating and drinking what they provide. For the laborer deserves his wages. Do not go from house to house. Whenever you enter a town and they receive you, eat what's set before you. Heal the sick in it and say to them, the kingdom of God has come near to you. But whenever you enter a town and they do not receive you, go into its streets and say, even the dust of your town that clings to our feet, we wipe off against you. Nevertheless, know this, that the kingdom of God has come near. I tell you, it will be more bearable on that day for Sodom than for that town. And then just to provide a little bit of context for what we've read, I'm going to read verses 16 through 20. <clears throat> We're not going to talk too much about it, but um, Jesus said, The one who hears you 
hears me. The one who rejects you rejects me. And the one who rejects me rejects him who sent me. The 72 returned with joy saying, Lord, even the demons are subject to us in your name. And he said to them, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. Behold, I have given you authority to tread on serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy, and nothing shall hurt you. Nevertheless, do not rejoice in this, that the spirits are subject to you, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. All right, so I've outlined the passage here into seven instructions that Jesus gives to those he's sending out. And then under the seventh one, after finding that person of peace, is to stay there and eat their food and heal the sick and tell them about the kingdom of God. And then he gives another instruction as what happens if they don't receive you, and he tells them what to do there to wipe the dust off their feet and move on. We'll be talking about why he says these things, but in your outline... I've left the third column blank, so if you've got your paper outline, the third column is blank so that you can fill in the applications. Not necessarily just what I say, but fill in how it applies to yourself. So I've left that as an exercise. Now Jesus gives a fairly detailed list of instructions. It might seem a little difficult to follow because there's so much there. But you think about it, all of us drive cars. Driving a car is a fairly complicated procedure, and it takes time to learn. But now we do, most of us, drive cars all the time, and so we kind of take it for granted. So once we've implemented instructions, and we've gotten used to doing it, it's not so difficult anymore. Same thing with Jesus' instructions. But... Since it's so complicated, I thought we'd simplify it down to three steps. The first is to pray. Pray for laborers for his harvest fields. The second is to go. And then he talks about how to go. In pairs, go where he's going to go. Don't bring things. Don't stop along the way. And finally, to stay. To stay in the place where you find the person who welcomes you in the name of the Lord, and that gives you more time to build disciples. So pray, go, and stay. That should be easy enough to remember. Pray, go, stay. There's three other words I want to introduce. Jesus gives instructions that... In in this case, sometimes some of them are a little bit difficult to follow. And we would like to say, well, that's for those 70 or 72 people. It's not for us. And so I just want to remind us what we all signed up for when we decided we want to follow Jesus. Jesus is Lord. So what he says, we take it seriously We follow, we do, even if it's difficult. And with that in mind, how does it apply to us, what he says? 
right? He's sending out the 70 or the 72, depending on your translation. He's sending out those people to go into certain towns where he's about to go. What about us? We're not itinerant evangelists, most of us. Most of us are staying put right here in San Jose. We're not traveling around. So there are some differences between them and us. So in order to understand how these things apply to us, we're going to look at the reasons why Jesus gave these commands to them, and then we can see whether those reasons apply to us and whether this applies to us and how we can maybe adapt what he's saying to to ourselves. We're going to see as we go through this that Jesus is not so much dealing with, in this passage, our justification, that is how we come to salvation, how we come to follow Jesus, but he's more dealing with strategic issues and what works, what's effective. And we'll see that as people around the world have been putting these things into practice, it's been very effective for them. So why these instructions? Let's start with the first one, pray. So I'm taking the outline out of order now so that we can follow pray, go, and stay. Pray for laborers. Why would Jesus ask them to pray? Because God answers prayer. God actually responds when we talk to him because we have relationship with him and he loves us. Prayer expresses our dependency on the Lord. He knows that we depend on him, but we need to express that in order to work that faith deep into our own hearts. The other reason he asked us to pray for laborers is that actually those laborers are going to come from the harvest. He's sending them out to the harvest to to bring people to become disciples of Jesus. And those very people who become his disciples will end up becoming the laborers for the next generation of disciples. And so it's continued for 2,000 years since Jesus' time until now. So pray. We can apply this to ourselves. This is pretty understandable for us. Everybody can pray. We may not know the first thing about how to take the message of the kingdom of God out into the world, but one thing we do know is we can talk to God. So everybody can pray. We can start here with our dependency on the Lord. And we have a prayer meeting first and third Sundays of every month, which means today, right? Yeah, today at Jerry's house at 6 o'clock, you can be there and pray together with us for God to send out laborers to his harvest fields. Among other things that we pray, pray for one another as well. Then Jesus says to go. The ESV just says, go your way, but the NIV puts it simply, go. I think that's pretty clear. Why would he tell them to go? Because when they go out carrying Jesus' message, it will be effective. In Isaiah 55, God promises, as the rain and the snow come down from heaven and do not fail to bring forth seed for the sower and food for the eater, so is my word that goes forth from my mouth. It will not fail to accomplish 
the purpose for which I sent it. So going is effective. He also tells them that they'll be like sheep among wolves, but I'm saving that for Nick (laughs) for later. It's a really important topic, but it's a whole topic to itself, and I won't have time to develop it today. So how does this apply to us? Maybe as you pray for laborers, you may find that you're the answer to your own prayer. But secondly, we start with our own relationships, the people we know around us, our family, our friends, people we work with, our neighbors. The Greek word in the Bible that expresses the network of relationships we have is oikos. So if you've ever gone to the store and seen the yogurt, the oikos yogurt, that's that same word. So that has to do with your friends and your family, that network. Think about if you have children. You tell your children about Jesus. I know I was reading Bible stories to my kids from as early as they could open up and look at a picture book when they were one year old. So by the time they were three or four, I could read to them from the actual Bible and they understood because they knew all the stories already. I wanted my children to know the Lord because I know how good it is to know the Lord. And I want to share with them what I have because I love them. And if you love the people around you, you're going to tell them the good news about Jesus. He sets us free. This is good news. And it's a great joy when we see them follow. Then you might want to pray about whether the Lord would send you even further. Do you need to go out across cultural boundaries? There's lots of people around us that come from all over the world. Many of them have never heard the gospel. Many of them are interested if we would explain to them. So we can go across cultural boundaries. Some of us may be called to go elsewhere. And we would want to pray about that as well. So he tells us how to go. <clears throat> First he says to, to go in pairs, two by two. Why would he do that? Because it's more effective than one by one. In fact, it's hard to imagine that he would even think to send out one by one. Our identity as believers is not so much as individuals, but collective. We're the body of Christ. We're not one individual doesn't make the whole body. That's all that Nick's been talking about these last several weeks, this covenant community. So Jesus sends them out in pairs and groups. When more than one person shares the good news of Jesus, when they talk about the kingdom of God, they come at it from different perspectives. So the person who's listening, who comes from a third perspective, he sees it from different angles, and it's a little bit easier for him to understand what they're talking about. And finally, at least in my experience, I know that when I was living out the Christian life alone, and there were no other believers around me, when I would go in and share the gospel with people, and they would see me you know, doing my best to exhibit the character of Christ, they would say, well, you're just a nice guy. You're the exception. It's just you. And I was like, no, it's Jesus. Jesus changed me. And they, it was hard to really convince them. But when they see more than one 
believer and they see that Jesus has changed more than one believer, they see a pattern. And then the glory goes to Jesus and not to us. And that's where it belongs. So Jesus sends them out in pairs. Of course, that's applicable to us today as well, right? We, when we share the gospel, whenever we can, when we have the opportunity, we want to work together with other believers, whether that's other believers in your neighborhood or at work or wherever you find them. We want to work together, maybe not necessarily just in groups of two, it could be three or four, but when there's a whole lot of us, we might tend to overwhelm people, so that's something to consider. So he sends them out in pairs to the places where he is about to go. And it makes sense. This is the pattern that we saw with John the Baptist. The lesser, John the Baptist, preparing the way for the greater, for Jesus. He sends out his disciples, the lesser, to prepare for him, the greater. But I think there's another principle at work here that one sows and another reaps. And Jesus made that explicit in John chapter 4 when he's, when he's shared about himself with the woman at the well. He's told her everything about her life, all the things that were secret that only she knew that he, she didn't tell him at, at all. She recognizes that he's a prophet. He takes the conversation a little bit further, and then she realizes that he's the Messiah. She gets really excited. She runs off to her village, and while she's off in her village, rounding up the people so they can come and see Jesus, he explains to his disciples, one sows and another reaps. What does he mean? For over a thousand years, from the time of Abraham to the time of Jesus, God has been at work, sowing seeds, planting the law and the teachings of the Old Testament. So when he meets the woman at the well, even though she's a Samaritan and the the message was a little bit distorted, she still understands there's a Messiah coming and he's going to explain everything to us. She has that expectation so he doesn't have to start all over again with the creation and tell all the stories of the Old Testament leading up to Christ. She already knows that. So he's able to build on that foundation. One sows and another reaps, and so he sends out his his disciples so they can sow the seed so he can come and reap the harvest. It's strategic. Oops. There it is. So today, how does that apply? We're the lesser, we point to the greater. That's obvious. But we also follow up on one another. When I was in graduate school, I lived in a little, a little while I lived in a house uh, that was owned by the church around the block. So there were a lot of graduate students who were Christians living there, and there were some that didn't know the Lord. So in the house, I met an Indian person, and he was, um, so I was explaining to him about Jesus. 
he was not very receptive. In fact, he told me, I will never follow that Jesus that you're talking about. I said, ooh, okay, I guess I don't know what else to say. So I got busy, he got busy, I didn't see him for a while. A few weeks later, I ran into him. He was beaming, he was excited, he wanted to talk to me. He said, guess what? He says, I believe in Jesus now and I'm going to be baptized. I said, wow, what happened? Well, he met some of the other believers in the house and they shared the good news with him and that time he got it. One sows, another reaps. So pray for laborers to follow up on your work. And you can bridge to whatever background people have. If they're Catholic upbringing or if they have some concept of God in their family as they were growing up, that will make it easier for them to understand when you talk about Jesus. Especially if there were believers in their family. A lot of people, when they're believers in their family, they're very interested to hear what you have to say about the Lord. So let's follow up. Then he tells them, don't bring bags or money. Why they didn't need to bring bags or money? Because where they were going was in the nation of Israel, and God has been sowing during all this time. The people were expected to be hospitable. So if they're listening to the word of God that's already been revealed to them, they're going to open up their homes to these people who are coming in the name of Jesus. So there's that expectation. Furthermore, for the person who's taking that message, there's the advantage that they learn to live out a dependency on the Lord. So, he says, don't bring bags or money. We, too, need to depend on the Lord. Whether it's financially or otherwise, we need to depend on Him for the words to say when we talk, talk about Jesus. We don't know what to do. We don't know what to say. We need Jesus to lead us. And for the person who's receiving the good news, that expectation that they contribute, that's important for them as well. And finally, he tells them, don't stop along the way. Don't stop to chat because there's an urgency. Jesus is going to those places. They need to get there right away so that they have more time before he arrives. So he says, don't stop and greet people along the way, because nothing else is more important. They're focused. They know what their goal is. This is life and death for the host. So don't stop to chat. The application to us is the same for those who receive our message, who hear our message. This is a matter of life and death. Those who believe in Jesus have life. And it's a joyful thing, and it's joyful to see when people come into that life. But those who don't, don't have it. Paul put it this way, he said, soldiers don't waste time on civilian affairs. So whatever we do, whether we're working, or even when we're having fun, whatever we do, we need to be conscious that we are living to glorify God. That's our purpose. 
So finally, he tells them to find a person of peace. This is really an important piece of the strategy that's been so effective in disciple-making movements around the world. To find that person of peace. So what is a person of peace? This is the one who welcomes you as you represent Jesus. And in an application around the world, people have noticed that they don't just welcome the carrier of the good news, but oftentimes they become the advocate later on. They become believers and disciples, and then they carry the message of faith with great enthusiasm and make more disciples. And we see that pattern a lot in the scripture. So for us, we want to let people know right up front where we're coming from, who we represent. We are, we are followers of Jesus, and we love Jesus. And if you think about it, when we share our faith and we kind of beat around the bush and then we don't get to the point and then all of a sudden we pop this thing about God to them, people feel a little bit uneasy because they think we're doing a bait and switch on them. It's actually not the most honest way of approaching things. It's better for us to be up front, let people know where we are from the start. It's more effective that way. And we may not be able to push all the way to you know, share the whole gospel message with people at one time, but at least they, they, we should identify ourselves. Once we see how we're received, then we know where we can invest our time. We'll see that more as we go on. There's lots of examples in the scripture. I talked about the woman at the well, Matthew the tax collector. We have uh, Cornelius, the centurion, and all his household believed in the Lord. Lydia, the Philippian jailer, Priscilla and Aquila. Let me talk about some examples in modern day times. So this is from... The church that we went to overseas, and we'll talk about a woman that we call Jane. It's just an English name. And she had an infectious enthusiasm and loved the Lord. And all the time when you talk to her, she just kept saying, thank God, thank God. Whether she's speaking English or Chinese, it didn't matter. Thank God, thank God for that. She was so enthusiastic, she would gather a group of believers around her, she would lead them to talk to all the visitors that came. And this was an international church, so there were lots of visitors, people coming because they wanted to learn English, people coming because they were curious about the Bible. They would grab those guys after church, both men and women, they would grab them, not literally grab them, but they would go and talk to them and they would spend time asking them, well, do you know about the gospel of Jesus? Did you understand the message that was preached this morning? Let me explain that to you. Can we talk to you more about Jesus? We love him so much. And then they would just spend maybe an hour after the service in front of the church at the picnic tables chatting with them. And afterwards, they would go out to lunch and spend another hour or two with them. This is how they made disciples. They would lead them so many of them to Christ that there were about a dozen that would come to our home to be baptized 
every three or four months. This was the movement of God. This is what God is doing. That's their shoes of the people that were getting baptized and some of their friends at our front door. Now today, right now, I don't have such a dramatic example, but it's kind of an encouraging thing in, in, in my current context. So I'm at work. We've had a, a few believers that I've known for many years. We were getting together. We were having a little men's group and watching videos and having discussion. And then we ran out of video material and we said, what should we do next? And I said, how about we look at the Bible? They said, okay. So we talked about it. They said, how about the Gospel of John? So we said, okay. So then we opened it up for everybody. And one of my brothers in Christ, he's from Ethiopia, a dear brother, he has a great enthusiasm for the Lord. And he started inviting people. He invited two ladies who decided they wanted to come, who were very interested and they've been coming pretty regularly. One is a secretary, one is a, an engineer. And they're coming to this Bible study every Friday at lunchtime. We're reading through the Gospel of John and talking about it. And letting them discover how it applies to their life. And that That's exciting. And that gives me a lot of joy to see that somebody is going to be able to share in, in that what I have. So Jesus says to find a person of peace, and this is how. He lays out the steps. First, tell them peace be with you. Then once they accept you or welcome you, then stay where you are, eat their food, heal the sick, and tell them about the kingdom of God. So let's go one by one. Leave with kindness, peace be on this home. That's obvious why you wouldn't do that, right? You don't want to come telling them some bad news. You want to tell them good news. And so you, you come because you love them. You start on with kindness. Obviously, we want to do the same thing today. When we approach people with the good news of Jesus, we want to lead by blessing them, by hope, you know, wishing peace on them, not by complaining about politics or by pointing out their sins. Those things come later. People will, if they get into the scriptures, they will see, and the Holy Spirit will convict them of their sin. So we need to be patient with people and not jump in too quickly. How does this look in practice? I've got another book here. This is called The Myth of the Non-Christian by Luke Cauley. I found this was, this has Lots of incredible insights on how to share our faith. The reason he says the myth of the non-Christian is that there's not just one category of people out there that we could call the non-Christian. There are lots of different people all coming from different perspectives, and we need to listen to what they have to say, and then we can understand how to approach them and how to connect with them. So he's got a story in here. This is about a young man named Martin. He was a teenager he was raised in a home that didn't have religion, but some vague sense of God. But he had questions about God, and he didn't find answers, so he, by himself, came to the conclusion he didn't think that there was any need for God, given that there's science. And he said the New Testament wasn't true, and he wondered where God is in the midst of global suffering. 
Well, he was invited by a friend to youth group. And then he was invited by the youth group leader's daughter to their home. And he began to spend time and eat regularly with them. And the atmosphere in their house, which he describes as joyous, communicative, and deeply engaged on an interpersonal level, was unlike any he had previously experienced. Martin says he witnessed an example of life which was deeper, richer, and qualitatively better than his own. Christianity wasn't yet plausible to him, but it was rapidly becoming tangible. Regular immersion in an authentically Christian home was making it real enough to touch. Before long, he felt increasingly confident to raise the big questions over dinner with the family. They took his concerns seriously, did their best to respond well, and also loaned him various relevant books. He discovered that his objections to Christianity were not as well-founded as he had previously assumed. Martin says that he increasingly began to think Christianly and drift toward Jesus. One Sunday evening, two weeks before leaving for college, he was attending the local Pentecostal church with his friend's family. The speaker invited those present to respond to Jesus for themselves by symbolically walking forward to the front of the auditorium. Martin says that the Christian song lyric, I Dare You to Move, by Switchfoot, flashed through his head. He stood up put one foot in front of the other, and stepped into a new life of following Jesus, which has continued to grow in vibrancy in the years since. What a joy to see that. Well, in his book, Luke mentions that there are three elements that tend to be present whenever somebody comes to believe in Jesus. One is plausibility. This is where the logical reasoning comes into play. And this is where I probably have the most training and that's my background. But usually that's not sufficient. Most people, in addition to believing that it's true, they need to know that following Jesus is attractive. And this is where we can focus on the life of Jesus, open up the Gospels and show them how Jesus loves people, how he heals the sick, how he takes care of of the needs of the poor. Jesus is a loving Savior. And then tangibility, that is, through relationship with believers, people will see the character of Jesus lived out right in front of their eyes. And that helps them to understand who Jesus is and why they would want to follow as well. So I read the example of Martin now, let me mention another example to make this more clear. This was Iki and her husband. Iki <clears throat> uh, was a relatively new believer. She had just gotten married, um, but they, they were, since they were newly married and they had gotten married in kind of a justice of the peace equivalent over in that country, um, they wanted to have a Christian wedding. And so they came to us and they said, well, can we have a Christian wedding? And would you help facilitate that? And we thought, well, this would be great. She's been praying for her husband to be saved with her friends in the church. 
So we said, well, how about that? We go through the premarital counseling material. Even though you're already married, this would be nice. It would give you a good foundation. And it, it happens that that premarital counseling material that we had, we borrowed from a church in uh, Texas. And it was gospel-saturated and all about things like how the husband should lay down his life for his wife, just like Jesus laid down his life for the church and things like that. It's all gospel-saturated. And so as we're going through this material, he's challenged, and he said to us, you know, the Bible has been really good for me. I said, how's that? He said, well, whenever my wife and I have an argument, she goes off by herself to pray, and then she comes back, and she says, I prayed about it, and I felt like the Lord was speaking to me, and you know what? You were right. (laughs) so he's like this is really good for me and so he had the desirability there and the tangibility there because his his wife's right there in front of him but what was missing he said but the only thing is i don't know if i can follow jesus because um you know it seems to conflict with science i said well wait a second i said it just happens that i'm a uh a PhD in physics, I can tell you about that. So we talked about how the universe really is designed. You can look at the universe, you know clearly that it's designed. For example, and there are many examples like this, for example, if the gravitational force were just a little bit stronger, the stars would all clump together and you'd have these big black holes and you wouldn't have any life because there'd be so many black holes and there wouldn't be any free little stars out there. And then... If the gravitational force were just a little weaker, then the stars wouldn't grow big enough to generate the heavy elements that we have around so abundantly in in this world. And if there were no heavy elements and the world was and the universe was made out of hydrogen and helium, there wouldn't be any life. There wouldn't be the elements to make up the complex chemistry that we have for life. And there are many other things that are similar to that. So after about a half hour of having this conversation, he said, I want to follow Jesus. I want to be baptized. That was great because Iki did all the hard work. She was, you know, living it out in front of him. And then we just got to reap the harvest with that little touch of of plausibility. So that was the key, was the tangibility with her. Once you find that person of peace, he says, stay put. That allows more time to make disciples, to teach them what is that kingdom of God all about. So stay put. And for us, once we identify those who are welcoming us, in the name of Jesus, then we can spend time with them and let them see our life and they'll learn to follow Jesus. We want to lead them to obey Jesus, not just to learn about him. So we walk them through the scripture, let them read it and let them discover for themselves how it applies to their lives. That's important that we don't just spoon-feed people, but we allow them to discover for themselves. They learn a lot more that way. And this is discipleship. It's a process. It takes time. It goes 
you know, from the basic teachings of the gospel until the person starts to recognize the sin in their life. And then there's all those things that have to be cleaned up. <clears throat> Finally, there's, <clears throat> there's the maturity that comes last. So you go from milk to mass to meat. That's the process of discipleship. He says, eat their food. You've earned it. That's what Jesus said. You're carrying the gospel message of Jesus. You're doing work for the kingdom of God. God wants to reward you. Eat their food. Don't be afraid. Don't move from house to house because he wants you to take whatever is given to you. It allows them, as they provide for you, they're participating in the kingdom of God in that small way. And that helps them to become more committed to it and establishes a pattern of discipleship from the beginning. Helps people to take responsibility. So we don't want to take it all from them. We want to let them do something. And that will, in addition, help us not to be worn out in the process. So there's a lot of wisdom in that. Remember that making disciples, they're in turn going to make disciples. So it's not like you have a little app, an apple and you get a seed out of it and you plant one seed. It's The apple makes a tree and then out of that tree you get lots of apples and lots more seeds and then you end up with a whole orchard. And that's the concept that Jesus is looking for. Then he tells them to heal the sick. Now we, we tend to think, well, that's for them, not for me. <clears throat> But this is important. Think about how they would have felt when Jesus says, heal the sick. If you're hearing that, you're saying, me? How am I going to do that? Obviously, that requires God's help. We can't do this at all by ourselves. So we're dependent on Jesus, and that's the way he wants it to be. In fact, everything that Jesus calls us to do, we need his help to do, to be honest. This one's just more obvious. But why he tells them to heal the sick, this fulfills the urgency. He sends them out very quickly and he's going to go to those places and this accelerates the process because now when they see the miraculous power of God, oftentimes many people come to faith at the same time. And that is still happening around the world today. Whole groups of people, movements of people coming to Jesus as he's working miraculous things. As we heard back uh, at the beginning, I mentioned this um, <clears throat> book, by, book by Jerry Truesdale, that, that Sheikh Hanif, he has this dream, obviously comes from the Lord. He knows the place and he saw the person's face ahead of time. Only God could have revealed it to him. Miracles do amazing things to convince people to follow the Lord. And if we want to obey this, we're motivated to go back and pray because we know we can't do it. So beforehand, we grow in faith because we go and pray. And afterwards, we grow in faith because we see the amazing power of God at work. Just have one short story this is from my brother's book on miracles, the first volume. And um, he's got two like this. 
But you buy them at one time. Okay. He interviewed uh, Bill Jackson. This was a pastor in a church that I used to go to, or he had been a pastor there, and he moved on since then to plant other churches. And so as, as he was going to plant a church, well, we'll call him Jax, he was uh, working on another job to support himself before the church got started. When the machinist at Jax's factory walked by him, the words carpal tunnel came to Jax's mind. So he asked the machinist what it meant. It turned out that the machinist had a bad enough case of this disorder that he was supposed to have surgery the following week. Instead, Jax prayed for him, the man was healed without an operation, and the man was converted, becoming the initial foundation of the church that Jax was planting. So that shows how it works in an American context. So it's not just overseas. And I put that last bullet in there, service to society, not because that's what he's talking about. He's talking about miracles, miraculous healings. By faith, we see God at work. But people have extended Jesus' meaning to refer to natural healings. And so doctors have opened clinics around the world. This has been happening historically. It's been wonderful to see that extended <clears throat> meaning. And so we have, for example, uh, Lynn Keene is working with the Sahora Clinic, and so our church is involved in that. And because she's involved in that, she, when she shares the gospel with her neighbors, they're more receptive because they see that she loves people, that the love of Jesus is coming out through her life. And that sets up a sort of a desirability there for the gospel. People start to see the love of Jesus and then they, they would, they're interested. It makes them more curious. <clears throat> so that's one thing I didn't want to miss. And lastly, to tell them about the kingdom of God, that was the whole purpose why they're going, to prepare the way for Jesus. We too need to point to Jesus and talk about him everywhere we go to everyone we meet. Do I fall short? I fall way short on this. But this is what he's asking. <clears throat> now, what happens if we take that gospel message and it falls on deaf ears, people don't want to hear it, they're rejecting us, they're changing the subject, it happens all the time. Well, Jesus said, your peace will come back to you, but, okay, I'm leaving as you asked me to leave. But one last thing, the kingdom of God is near. So they give them a last chance, another opportunity for repentance, and it frees them to move on after they shake the dust off their feet. How does that apply to us? Sometimes, this has been my experience, we get frustrated. It's like we're banging our head against the wall because we keep trying to talk about the gospel to the same people over and over again, like my mom. It just it doesn't happen. They're not receptive. They keep rejecting it over and over again. They get frustrated because they don't want to have you keep coming back to them again and again. 
And we get frustrated because we're rejected again and again. Sometimes it's time to move on. It doesn't mean that we never talk to them again, but it means that we invest our time more heavily elsewhere where we start to see a response. This is not my instruction. This is Jesus talking. This is his strategy, and it works, and it's effective, and we won't feel so frustrated because we'll see God at work. We'll start to find those people of peace wherever they are. God is calling somebody to himself. We've got to get out there, and we've got to spread the net wide enough to find those people. But if we do move on, it's more loving to give a final warning, and we need to be open and pray because people change over time. Sometimes they may reject us, but later on something happens in their life and they start to, to change and think about the gospel more seriously. And maybe they'll come back to us at that time. So to sum it up, this is all that we talked about. And for some of us, we're not doing what Jesus has told us to do. He's Lord. We need to follow him. We need to just start listening to what he said. For a lot of us, we're probably trying to do this, but we're finding we're not as effective as we'd like to be. And maybe from looking at the way Jesus told us to approach it, we can learn something. We can become better at what we do. So that probably applies to most of us. Some of us probably we think, this is overwhelming, it's, it's hard, how are we going to do this? And I would encourage you and myself, when I feel that way, to go back to the start and pray. Pray for God to send laborers. Pray because God listens to us pray. And that's what he told us to do. So let's pray now. Father, We thank you for your word, so rich in wisdom. We thank you for your word, but we also know that we've fallen short in following it. It's hard for us to obey. We're afraid to be rejected. We're afraid to speak out about the good news. We want to kind of go out there and and not not make ourselves stick out, but help us, Lord, to have courage and give us wisdom and give us boldness and release the power of your Holy Spirit on us so that we can speak of your kingdom and tell people good news. Lead us, Lord, to those people who would receive you and give us your grace. In Jesus' name, amen.